0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome, welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Sylvain Charlebois, Director of AgriFoods, the Analytics Laboratory and Professor at Dalhousie University, and Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and President and Founder of Canadians for affordable energy because U.S. inflation numbers hit a new 40-year high in May at 8.6%. Meanwhile, U.S. food inflation, Professor Charlebois reported, also at a 40-year high at 10.1%, while the cost of groceries was up nearly 12%. And now Health Canada is requiring new labeling and nutrition symbol for ground meat because it's high in unsaturated fats. So, um... Professor Charlebois says 50% of meat sold in Canada is ground meat. So why is Health Canada taking this decision at this time? I wonder. I wonder whether it might have something to do with the fact that beef isn't uh, agreeable with Mr. Trudeau's view of climate. I wonder. The price of gasoline and diesel, the cost of natural gas, the cost of electricity. Will we face heating our homes challenges this winter, or is that just a scare tactic? Uh, we're going to play back for you a little later on what uh, Terry Brough told us yesterday, the former director of energy supply for France, about what they're expecting in Europe. We'll play that back for you in a little while. So let me say hello to uh, fighter pilots, uh, Sylvain Charlebois and Dan McTagg. Sylvain, how are you?
2: Good. How are you?
0: <laughs> Great. Uh, Have you seen the movie? probably
2: something you don't know about me. Uh, in 1985, when the first Top Gun movie came out, uh, I was 15 years old, and uh, that movie got me to enroll in the Armed Forces.
0: Oh, horses. no kidding.
2: Yeah. I became an air navigator and uh, graduated from RMC back in 1992. There you well, go.
0: thank you for your service. What planes were you on? Well, I
2: was, you I was a navigator. I wasn't a pilot, so I actually flew on the, um, on the Great Seeking on the East Coast, the Aurora, out of uh, Greenwood, Nova Scotia. And uh, the CC 130 Hercules, uh, based out of both uh, Trenton and CFB Edmonton.
0: Well, that's a great story, and I'm glad you survived the Sea King.
2: <laughs> Unfortunately, not everyone did. Not uh, it everyone was a did. very old aircraft when I was uh, in the service, so can you imagine now? It's incredible.
0: Yeah, it was an old aircraft when you were 15. Dan McTague. Yeah, I... Sorry, go ahead, that.
2: Yeah, no, I was 15, but of course I started. Uh, I joined the service uh, two years later. But Top Gun really affected me, and uh, yeah, I, I remember that that summer, all, every kid wanted to be a fighter pilot. For
0: sure, for sure. And this one, I think this one's even better than the original. So I won't tell you any more than that. I don't know if you've seen it, Dan McTagg. What's your military history? What do we know about you? <laughs>
1: 172 Squadron, uh, Avenue Road. I don't think it's there anymore. I joined the Air Cadets, but that was uh, a good time before Top Gun and uh, long before uh, Sylvain's service. Um, got to actually uh, sit in a glider, um, fly one around, learn how to make some out of balsa wood, do a bunch of fun stuff, but uh, it wasn't to be my, uh, my career. And uh, I think some other people think that uh, when I went to politics, it might have been a little closer to being a space cadet. But nevertheless, uh, what actually happened is the uh, interest in, uh, in, in, in air uh, was really, uh, it really ended for me when I went to high school and uh, thought maybe uh, there might be a better future for me in, uh, in veterinarian services. So that's kind of where I wanted to go, but uh, didn't wind up there. So as you can tell. Okay.
0: Well, I was an ordinary seaman standard, which was the lowest rank in the Royal Canadian Naval Reserve at HMCS Donnacona in Montreal. And then uh, after that, long after that, they made me an honorary lieutenant colonel um, in the Army. And I resigned that honorary commission over the way the federal government treated the crew of HMCS Shikunami, the submarine, after it caught on fire. So I very publicly resigned that. It uh, it worked out very well. So I'm having some, I just want to tell the studio, I'm having some issues with my uh, phone uh, screen. So you're going to have to handle it for me for a little bit. Gentlemen, let me start with you. Let's start with this with both of you. Neither beef nor many foods, nor oil, nor natural gas should be in short supply in this country. They should, based on Canada's resources, I think, be fully available and reasonably priced for Canadians. If there is a problem, is the problem the government and the way the government is dealing with both food and with natural gas and energy? Uh, So now let me start with you on the food issue.
2: Yeah. So, um, in terms of uh, of food production, uh, farmers are really uh, struggling, of course, because of higher input costs. I, I've heard uh, from many farmers, actually, around the country, uh, basically saying that they've uh, they've had some issues, uh, not only. Uh, paying for fertilizers, but they actually uh, are having trouble uh, having access to fertilizers. And, of course, we all know what's going on with fuel costs. Uh, So a lot of farmers are motivated to put anything in the ground, of course. uh, But uh, small-scale farmers, probably outside the prairies, uh, some of them have actually decided to remain idle, uh, not to grow anything, just because with Mother Nature, you never know if, uh, if you're struck by a drought in the middle of summer—you have nothing to sell. Well, you got, you got all this money in the ground. It's hard to to actually uh, run a profit. So that's—it's been a hard year so far for farmers, and 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 most of them are risking quite a bit.
0: Yeah, Dan, uh, I think I have an idea of what you're going to say to me, but uh, ju- just for the sake of our listeners and where we are today in the national scene, on the international scene. When it comes to the issue of energy resources, how much is the federal government of this country, there may be other governments as well, how uh, involved are they in areas they, let me rephrase the question from the way I usually do it, how involved are they in areas they shouldn't be involved in?
1: Well, they shouldn't be involved in killing pipelines, natural gas and oil, um, nor tolerating those who are, you know, uh, standing in the way of their, uh, they're building. Um, you know, it's interesting, Roy, that why we haven't been able to get more than one pipeline rebuilt. The Americans have gone another their way up until the Biden administration came in and uh, built uh, 172 of them. Now, not all in the same capacity, but it goes to show you that uh, uh, when you don't have the ability to uh, provide to the rest of the world that which they now clearly desperately need, not only are you doing injury to and creating you know uncertainty about our ability to get our product to market. It's it's also having a a damaging effect and and repercussions well beyond fuel when it comes to things like, for instance, the value of the Canadian dollar. Now you know a lot of people say there's a whole host of reasons for that, and I I've, I've seen them all. But the one that often gets ignored is the fact that. Uh, When you've got nothing interesting the rest of the world wants to buy including most importantly your number one and two exports like natural gas and oil you can imagine uh, the the damage that has on uh, on the purchasing power of every canadian
0: okay just before i take a break here i want to ask you each uh, one more question and then when we come back we're going to do something a little differently so now let me start with the food inflation it's at a 40-year high the impact on uh, the cost of food. Uh, What is it and how does the food industry react to and or perhaps prepare production with this inflationary trend and rising interest rates?
2: Yeah, so uh, we got numbers from the U.S. uh, this week so uh, 12 percent at the grocery store that that is huge and so obviously in two weeks when we get numbers from SatCan for the month of May we are expecting a higher number than 9.7 percent which is what we got for or April, and uh, so yes, as consumers, we're all we're all impacted by by these numbers. But what what most people don't know is that it's putting a lot of pressure on the in on the food system uh, within the supply chain. A lot of companies are just not agreeing on who's going to be paying what, because it's happening so violently fast that uh, renegotiating prices it's been very difficult. Typically. You know, vendors would commit to a price list of six months at least. Not anymore because the needle is moving so so quickly. Nobody's committing to anything. And so that's why we saw the stop sale between Lay and Loblaws a few months ago. Uh, there are several stop sales going on right now. So if you go at the grocery store and you see some empty shelves, it's not necessarily because we're running out of something. It's just because right now the supply chain is under tremendous pressure. and uh, a lot of companies are are trying to the, the best. Uh, they're trying to cope with with the pressures that, that inflation is is putting on them.
0: Let me get at this one with you, Dan. And yesterday, wow. Professor Terry Bro was on with us, former Director of Energy Supply for France, and he told us that Europe is going to face blackouts this winter. He also said government policies, all of them, not just one, Are incoherent, and the politicians didn't tell people the truth about the challenges of switching to renewables because they feared social unrest and feared losing elections. Here's a little of what he said
1: Some of this Russian gas is not replaceable. As I said, 40% has been replaced by the market. Another uh, 40% could be replaced, but the last few percent, the last 20%, 30% cannot be replaced. And so therefore, if he cuts completely, we are in blackouts. And even if he doesn't cut completely, we are in a very difficult position because we didn't plan this
0: ahead. So there's Terry Bro. He's the guy again, Dan, who was in charge of energy supply for the entire nation of France. He was the director and he's worried about blackouts this winter. We're not in Canada, at least I don't think we are. But what is your sense about how governments has handled And he said incoherent policies, didn't want to tell people about the challenges of going to renewables because they feared social unrest and losing elections. What do you see here? Well,
1: look, I think if we're heading towards net zero, which includes 80% electrification, we may very well be replicating that. Not that we have the money to get there. I mean, when you talk about uh, the need for the build-out to get to that point, not to mention the risks, which many of us saw when a storm comes through and knocks down a few 1,000 uh, uh, hydropoles, I think what's happened here is that uh, in Canada, uh, while the world is changing rapidly in view of the fact that we have diminished the significance of fossil fuels, not only has it led to much higher prices uh, and shortages, as Mr. Breaux is suggesting, it is, uh, as the expert you have here, so then will point out, uh, creating Unintended consequences, as far as uh, you know, as far as food is concerned, now, we can have this big debate about uh, renewables and energy and fossil fuel versus non-fossil fuel and climate change and everything. But I think the argument or the discussion, the debate ends rapidly and radically once you start messing around with the ability for people to uh, make ends meet and to get All the right. food
0: that they need to make ends All meet. Right. Speaking of climate, by the way, next half hour, Bjorn Lomborg is going to be our guest, Professor Lomborg. We'll be back. So, uh, government actions, and and you and I have talked about this when you've been a guest on this program. We've talked about the uh, federal government not really seeming to favor the agricultural sector, and in the last federal budget, there wasn't anything specifically about the agri-sector. There were bits and pieces, as you said, in the budget, but there wasn't a section about it. Now, you've tweeted about Health Canada forcing labeling on ground meat And doing so very suddenly, and you tweeted this morning, here's the quote, when the mighty state makes dietary decisions for its population, which often undermine long-standing traditions, that's when you're in trouble. Can you expand on that for us?
2: Well, basically, what uh, Health Canada wants to do is uh, it wants to tell Canadians that ground meat is is dangerous, (laughs) is unhealthy, which is not necessarily true. Um, so I, I think we're about ten days away from seeing Health Canada making an announcement about front-of-package labeling. But the, the food industry, most people are, are agreeable to to the policy. I, I think uh, the spirit the spirit behind the policy is to actually get the processed foods uh, to change formulas to become uh, healthier. I guess. Uh, but uh, when you look at what's happening with the exemption list yeah so dairy is exempt but not ground meat and and so which would make Canada the first country in the world not to exempt a single ingredient product which is ground meat and of course when you look at El Canada's threshold they look at products when they're raw but of course when you think about Ground beef or ground pork. Very rarely, Canadians would actually eat these products raw. Once you cook them, uh, they those products would be in compliance with uh, with uh, Health Canada's threshold of fifteen percent. Uh, so that's it's quite concerning. And and again, it it really it, it really has become a head scratcher. And you have to wonder whether or not this is driven by uh, ideologies or. Perhaps Healthcare just wants to ban the product altogether because food retailers will not sell a product with a huge label telling uh, their customers that this product is bad for them. They'll just, they'll just exclude them. They won't carry the product. They'll just carry extra lean products, which, of course, is way more expensive. And, and so a policy like this could actually push meat prices even higher than they are now.
0: Oh. Good. If, if you don't like this idea, ladies and gentlemen, you can uh, complain to don'tlabelmybeef.ca. don'tlabelmybeef.ca. Sylvain Charlebois also had that on his Twitter feed at uh, food, the food professor. Uh, Dan, final question for you, and we have uh, just about a minute. The uh, Where we stand, where we are as far as gasoline pricing is concerned. You tweeted this morning that in Vancouver gasoline today, 233.9 a liter, Eighty-one cents of that is tax. Where are we going?
1: Well, we're going higher. Uh, Oil is going to $140 a barrel, Brent, um, and uh, that would mean another fifteen to twenty cents a liter. Uh, that's not an average, but that's certainly the high end of what we could expect. Uh, diesel will follow the same. It's going to be a very expensive, if not impossible, summer for most. And. Uh, I can only imagine that uh, natural gas and propane, important for farming, important for manufacturing, important for transportation in this country, are won't be very far behind. So uh, the summer of our discontent is now at hand.
0: Two U.S. surgeons wrote a probing op-ed titled, America's Failed Opioid Policy Drove the Tulsa Shooter to Violence. Now, the surgeons point to a Tulsa spinal surgery patient reportedly in terrible Post operative pain, unable to access um, effective pain management medication, and the patient subsequently shot and killed the surgeon and the others at the Tulsa Hospital. Now, before we t- talk to the surgeons and the op ed they wrote, I want you to listen. It's one minute and 13 seconds. Please play it.
3: I get pain pills every, maybe every two, three months. Okay, I can make one monthly prescription of pain pills lasts two or three months because I don't really take it unless I absolutely need it. And when you have metastatic cancer in your bones, you need it. Because sometimes the pain is so much you can't even function. And I just want to function. I just want to be able to go to work. And I want to be able to sleep. And I want to be able to do things with my child. And and I just want it not to hurt all the time. I've got cancer. I have terminal cancer. So I've had to get my pain pills filled at, like, a CVS. The CVS and Target has filled it a couple times because I just, it's such a headache. I don't even like taking it there because they make me feel like I'm a felon or something.
0: Her name is April. I don't know if she's still alive. That particular video was placed onto, uh, posted to Twitter a couple of years ago. And that's only part of her story on that video. Um... It breaks your heart, but it happens every day. So the op-ed written by our two guests, uh, America's Failed Opioid Policy Drove the Tulsa Shooter to Violence. The guests are Dr. Jeffrey Singer, surgeon, senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Dr. Singer is a member of the Board of Scientific Advisors of the American Council of Science and Health. And Dr. Richard Menger is the other co-author of the op-ed, neurosurgeon and chief of complex neurosurgery at USA Health. Uh, Dr. Singer, Dr. Menger, good to have you with us. How are you? Good, thank
4: you. Thank you for having us.
0: Heartbreaking to hear, April, just a minute and 13 seconds, but it happens every day, doesn't it?
4: Yes. Uh, The the main reason this is going on is because um, as opioid overdose death rates started to become quite noticeable, policymakers and politicians were looking for somebody to blame. There's always You always look for somebody to blame. And there were stories coming out of doctors who were operating so-called pill mills, where basically they were using their medical degrees and licenses to be drug dealers. Uh, there were reports of dealers who would pay people to fly, for example, down to Florida, where there, a lot of these pill mills were, they would be told, go to this particular doctor, say these things, he'll give you a prescription for a thousand oxycodones, then go to this particular pharmacy and ask for this pharmacist, he'll fill them, and then bring it to me and I'll give you a reward. And this kind of thing was going on, no question. And so it's easy to jump to conclusions. Uh, And so quickly it was decided that the overdose crisis was caused by doctors hooking patients on prescription pain pills. Uh, and then condemning them to a life of addiction and street drugs. But actually, the science doesn't bear that out. Uh, Government's own numbers from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health show that the the addiction rate to prescription pain pills is basically unchanged since they began studying this in 2002. Um, And other research by the CDC and the University of Pittsburgh have shown that the overdose rate has been actually growing exponentially, at least since the late 70s, the only thing that's changed over the years is which particular uh, drug is predominating among the causes of the overdose deaths. So we really have a growing population of uh, non-medical users of drugs most of the time accessing these drugs in the black market where these drugs are very dangerous. And around the late 90s, early 2000s, as doctors became more liberal in their prescribing of opioids, and I would argue that's a good thing because they were under treating pain in the, up until the late 80s, early 90s. Um, as But as they were prescribing more liberally, there were more prescription pain pills available for what Is called diversion into the black market. And that became the drug of choice for non-medical drug users when it was decided. And, you you know, you had a couple of these very, very uh, elaborate stories, like I just mentioned, which could make people jump to conclusions. When it was decided that doctors were creating this, a whole bunch of efforts were made to get doctors to to reduce prescribing. So now prescribing has come down 60 percent since it peaked in 2012. In the meantime, overdose rates have soared. We have now, the the, the CDC just reported, 108,000 total overdose tests in 2021, 77,000 of which were from prescription, rather from opioids, but 87% of those were from illicit fentanyl, had nothing to do with prescription pain pills. In fact, according to the CDC's own numbers, prescription pain pills are only involved in a less than 10% of overdose deaths by themselves without any other drugs. Okay. And about 90% of drug overdose deaths are what's called polydrug. It involves things like uh, cocaine, about half the time, methamphetamine, uh, z- uh, benzodiazepines like Xanax, alcohol. We doctors never prescribe these drugs in combination to patients. Right. So meanwhile, uh, and Dr. Menger uh, will, will attest to this, he, he's a spine surgeon just like Dr. Phillips who was killed. And we doctors are all feeling pressured by licensing boards, law enforcement, cetera, even insurance companies to reduce our opioid prescribing. And what all this is doing is it's doing two things. Number one is making patients suffer. And some of them are getting desperate and turning to the dangerous black market for relief. Some are committing suicide. Some are threatening doctors like, like this particular patient, uh, this uh, murderer. Um, and then at the same time, all of the non-medical users who had been preferring to use Basically stolen prescription pain pills. They've long ago moved on to what's a, what the market has, the black market has has provided them, which is was first heroin, and now heroin and fentanyl. Now mostly fentanyl because prohibition in general tends to uh, incentivize the development of more and more potent forms of of any drug that's prohibited. Because right, it, so the more potent you could, it, it, it is the the more worthwhile it is to smuggle it, and the more you can subdivide it.
0: Okay, let me just bring this, uh, this patient into the picture here. And thank you for the background, uh, Dr. Singer. We talk uh, you know, not infrequently about the issue of chronic pain patients on this program, and it's very important to have this background. Now, uh, Dr. Menger, this patient uh, was Michael, his name was Michael Lewis, who underwent spinal surgery in Tulsa about a month ago and eventually became the man who picked up a gun and uh, tragically shot and killed his surgeon and others before killing himself. And in the op-ed, you both write, while this is shocking, it's not unpredictable. Would you speak to that, please, Dr. Menger?
5: Yeah, pr- appreciate that. I, I, it's a very, very challenging situation that's sort of created a milieu, and environment for that friction. So there's there's certainly pressure to limit opioid prescriptions, and, and some of that is, you know, overarching, and some of that's guiding. At the same time, there are direct rules and regulations that make it challenging. So you know, for example, um, in terms of chronic patients, in terms of spine patients, I treat, you know, complex spine patients with scoliosis, and in, in the same manner that that oncologic patients or cancer patients, they have long-term pain needs, right? So they need, uh, you know, pain coverage for extended periods of time. We know this, but our rules and regulations have us only able to prescribe opioids for a very set short amount of time. Um, So what that does is put chronic refills, uh, what that does is put chronic stress on the patients and the provider to constantly be um, re-prescribing the same medication doses and putting them through um, an e-prescribing network that may or may not work. So the the reality of that is it it puts us at friction with our patients and that's not what we want to do. That's not, you know, why we're doctors. That's not why we come to, to work, you know, each day to help treat, you know, our patients. And I think you know what it comes to um you know to sort of uh build on exactly what dr singer said which is you know the 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 sort of the die has been cast in the sense of, of, of someone has to be blamed for this and i think that unfortunately you know when that happens the people who suffer are our patients right? and it's really really hard to see our patients you know in pain and not have the ability to treat them the way that that we want to, the way that our clinical judgment feels feels fit to do so.
0: There's no empathy here for what this shooter did, none. There's empathy for the pain that he suffered and the fact that he couldn't get his pain medications. And it's arguably, uh, I think the argument can be made uh, and likely sustained, that had he been able to uh, receive the pain medication he required following spinal surgery, the opioid pain medication he required, the shooting would likely never have taken place. Someone died, the doctor died, others died, and then he killed himself. A terrible, terrible situation. And uh, Dr. Singer, as you said, patients became the drug abusers, patients, chronic pain patients, patients became drug abusers in the eye of the government, and the government became the big stick interventionist, adding pain on pain. Right. Um
4: And like I said, the government's own U.S. government's own data show that addiction to prescription pain pills has not changed since they began. It's roughly, uh, I think, one point two percent of adults since they began taking the uh, data in 2002. You know, this is uh, I've I've been arguing for a while now. This is really a prohibition crisis. So that's what it's always been. You know, back in the uh, 70s, 80s and early 90s, when the majority of people overdosing on drugs were minorities, inner city people, marginalized groups, then policymakers blamed the overdoses on their bad choices, their immoral behavior. But when it began to involve white middle class people in the you know early two thousands, then they blamed it on. They said that 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 the, that the overdose victims were victims of the pharmaceutical companies and bad doctors. But all along, the blame rests in one place, and that's drug prohibition. Drug prohibition makes non-medical use or, you know, use outside the medical setting of drugs very dangerous because the only place you can get it is in the black market, and the black market, you know, there's no opportunity to be sure about the uh, the dosage, whether or not it's tainted. And now, so a lot of people uh, who were in, using uh, stolen drugs prescription pain pills. And I would argue that was a lot safer, actually, because they were what they said they were. You knew the dose. They weren't adulterated. They, were, they, Their source dried up, uh, and they have moved on to much more dangerous drugs. That's okay, why the so overdose so rate is going to, up. I, Meanwhile, to, just interject I I'd like to interject with this particular
0: point. I'd like to interject with this point, if I could, because we, we only have about three minutes left. Oh, yeah. there, there are doctors, there's a large group of doctors who will support this, you called it the prohibition on on, uh, chronic pain medication, the opioids. And you, Dr. Singer, you were involved in a debate on that issue just a couple of nights ago in New York City. But Dr. Menger, what about this? uh, Doctors who support, as you're calling, the prohibition on, on opioids. And the other question I need to ask you, is there an environment now starting to build where doctors are becoming potentially afraid of patients because doctors are afraid to prescribe what they know they need to prescribe?
5: Yeah, so I think, you know, Dr. S- uh, Singer's been a luminary in, in, in illustrating this before, and I think it's coming to the, the surface now. Um, there, there's definitely, um, you know, an environment of, of friction between the physician and between the, the, the doctor prescribing pain medication. I think, you know, a lot of the, the intentions behind potentially limiting opioid prescriptions, including some of our colleagues who are physicians, they're well-intentioned, but the focus is on the outcome. Right. And I think it's clear from, from Dr. Singer's work, from lots of documented data sets from the government's own data sets that that doesn't match reality. So for me, it comes down to how can I treat this human being, this patient who's coming to me to be treated uh, in the safest way possible with the best clinical evidence I have. And for me, it comes down to does the data, does the outcome match the intention of the the goodwill behind their efforts? And, and I think that, you know, as, as physicians, um, you know, there's certainly... You know, we are the focal point of a lot of stresses of the health system and we are sort of the the figurehead for that. So I think there is some momentum, um, you know, with that. We're seeing that come out in different ways in different spaces. Okay, we have about 90 seconds.
0: Dr. Singer, there are pain patients listening right now, chronic pain patients. If I open the phone lines, we'd be talking for hours. People who live with constant agony are unable to function. Some think about suicide. There have been suicides. What do you say to the pain patients? I,
4: I, I sympathize with their situation uh, tremendously because these, these are people who need relief. Um, and just because they've been on a drug that cre- – there are lots of drugs that cause dependence. Beta blockers cause dependence. You take them for high blood pressure. Anti-epileptics cause dependence. Just because your body has developed a dependence on the drug, that's not the same thing as being addicted. And if the drug is doing what it's supposed to be doing, if you're taking it long term and it's giving you enough relief, we can have some uh, productive, meaningful life. Then there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to stop that. It's irrational and cruel.
0: All right. Firearms in the news every day in this country. The Trudeau government is uh, pushing forward legislation to cap the ownership of handguns, And in the United States, the U.S. House of Representatives passed sweeping gun reform legislation in a 223 to 204 vote on Wednesday. This in response to the mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas. The House vote, though, is expected to fail to reach the required 60 votes in the Senate and fail to become law. There were marches in Washington yesterday, more today, demanding changes U.S. gun legislation, our guest was honored at a Boston Celtics-Golden State Warriors NBA finals game in Boston this week. He was also in Washington as the House was voting on the gun measures. Our guest is Mark Barden, co-founder and CEO of Sandy Hook Promise Action Fund and board director. As you know, Mr. Barden's son Daniel was one of the children killed in a mass school shooting at Sandy Hook School. In Connecticut in 2012, and as I told you last weekend when Mr. Barden who was with us for a few minutes, since then Sandy Hook Promise has made and continues to make a major impact. 14 million people have participated in the Sandy Hook Know the Signs program. 115,000 anonymous tips have been received, and 321 confirmed lives have been saved. Mark Barden returns to the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mark, thank you very much for coming back. Uh, Good to talk to you again.
6: Thank you, Roy. I appreciate the opportunity. It's always nice to talk to you.
0: The shootings in Buffalo, which is about 45 minutes from where I am right now, in uh, Uvalde, the shooting in Uvalde as well, reverberated. How strongly in the United States? We're looking to get a sense of that here. There have been many mass shootings previously And my question, I guess, is do people most react when children become victims? And that has to be a painful question for you. And the Sandy Hook Promise focuses on creating a culture which prevents school violence. I'd like you to speak to that. But how long do people, in fact, respond to mass shootings? Or has it become a situation in the United States where, unfortunately, tragically, they're so prevalent that they almost slide by after a while?
6: Oh, uh, yeah, that's the question of the day, Roy, and, and, and I'm doing my best between my organization and my own, my own personal outreach to not allow uh, folks in, in our country to become complacent to the, the constant mass shootings, constant si- shootings in our towns and cities uh, every day. Uh, we, we, cannot, we cannot look away. We cannot um, just go on with our lives if this is not an epidemic, because it is. And as you say, uh, those... Feelings are spiked when we see such her- horrific atrocities like grocery shoppers being gunned down and shot to death in a store for being black. Uh, and, of course, uh, in our country, I think a lot of folks thought the tragedy that happened to my little Daniel when school children were shot to death in their elementary school in Sandy Hook was, was, uh, would, would, would never happen again. And it was an anomaly. And now we've, we've witnessed that has now happened again and you add that up to folks uh, in places of worship, in uh, a shopping mall, and a concert, and a ball field, and anywhere and everywhere you go, uh, there's a potential that you're going to be shot to death. It's unacceptable. And uh, I, uh, I am begging all Americans to hold on to that outrage and let it uh, continue past the news cycle and not let it fade with the news cycle and, and become active and stay active. It's the only way we're going to turn this around.
0: Mark, your dedication to this is exceptional, given what you have experienced, what your family experienced, what the other families at Sandy Hook have experienced, for you to be doing what you're doing as consistently, and as long as you have with the dedication you bring to the issue, is really, really exceptional, and we all thank you for that. I
6: appreciate that, Roy. It's it's driven by, you know, we know that this is preventable. We have the tools at our disposal to, to prevent these from happening, and um, that that's where there's hope it's also where it's so frustrating uh, but but I have to lean into the hope that uh, we can we can prevent this from happening and change our culture
0: Yeah. so the vote in the House of Representatives in Washington this week on gun legislation 223 to 204 support for changes to the gun legislation <clears throat> excuse me larger capacity magazines restrictions raising the age for purchases of firearms and that one really got to me because In Texas, the Uvalde school children shooter was able to buy, this is so stunning to me, was able to buy high-powered semi-automatic rifles on his 18th birthday. But, Mark, had he instead been drinking a beer on a Texas beach, he would have received a citation. How does that begin to make sense?
6: It doesn't make sense to me, Roy, to be honest with you. Um, The the ability to to buy... um you know, the most lethal consumer product known to man the, uh, and, and to buy a, uh, assault weapons should not be available for an 18-year-old to purchase as an impulse buy, plain and simple, end of story. Uh, so we, uh, both the House and the Senate are trying to address that um, with whatever they can get across the finish line, and that's what we're trying to talk about here, is what's possible at this stage of the game. Uh, this, this, all, of, all of what we're seeing in these days, Roy, are first steps. Uh, it's the beginning. Uh, and I think, I think we'll, underst- we'll our country will be able to understand that this doesn't mean the, the end of your career if you uh, vote to, to protect the lives of your constituents and make your community safer. Uh, so we'll see provisions that will address the uh, 18-year-old um, age limit for uh, uh, somebody to buy um, an assault rifle.
0: You're not looking to disarm Americans uh, with Sandy Hook promise. Your approach is also nonpartisan. Uh, you want responsible gun ownership, and you're res- uh, you're supported by many gun owners in in that regard. Mark, please tell us what what is it that makes absolute what makes sense as far as gun ownership is concerned or gun legislation is concerned. And when I look at that two twenty three to two hundred four votes in the House of Representatives in Washington this week, so it passes on the uh, in larger capacity magazine restrictions and so on. But when it gets to the Senate, it's not going to get through because it will not have the votes. What is what is sensible, and how do you get it past the various levels of government? Again, keeping in mind, you're not trying to disarm Americans.
6: That's exactly right. And none of these provisions that are being introduced either in the House or the Senate uh, or anything about disarming Americans or uh, eliminating anyone's Second Amendment rights are all consistent with the Constitution. They are supported by. Uh, responsible gun owners, and if you identify as a responsible gun owner, you're probably already practicing everything that they're trying to uh, bring through as law. <clears throat> and uh, and I've always known we've always known that we have the numbers. We have uh, the vast majority of sensible uh, Americans, whether they're gun owners or not, whether they're Republicans or Libertarians or uh, or Democrats or whatever their political stripe, all agree that we want to protect our children and make our communities safer, and that these are. Uh, reasonable ways to do that, uh, to bring those numbers of casualties down, of these preventable uh, tr- atrocities by uh, guns. And uh, everything that's being proposed is constitutional and is also proven effective to save lives and reduce those numbers. Uh, so it's been my mission. We've talked about complacency early, earlier, and it's always been my, my belief that that is the true en- enemy here, always complacency. And getting more folks activated and to demand that their legislators vote in their favor uh, on this issue is is where the the rubber meets the road, and that's where the change will come and that's what i'm on this mission to try to inform people and educate them that these provisions are all constitutional and they're all proven effective. We just need people to speak up and uh, and let their legislators know that this is important to them and that they're demanding it
0: before we take a break mark, how can our listeners become involved? with Sandy Hook, and we have listeners on both sides of the border. Um, I'm, as I said, I'm 45 minutes from Buffalo right now. How can our listeners get involved?
6: Um, I mean, our, our organization is a nonprofit organization, Roy. We, we focus a lot of our work in training students how to recognize the warning signs that we know precede these events uh, and give them the tools to take the next steps to intervene and get a, uh, a trusted adult uh, involved who can connect that individual to help before it becomes a tragedy. Uh, and we do that through the generosity of our, of our donors and our volunteers and our staff and all the people that help us do this work. We don't charge anything for these programs to bring them into schools across the country. Uh, so we, we, we are always dependent on the help uh, of folks who want to donate time uh, or dollars or, um, or advocacy or, or sh- helping us spread the word. It's all about ed- uh, education and awareness. Uh, so there's so many opportunities for folks to help. Uh, this, this organization has been nonpartisan since its inception, uh, and that is why we, we are so effective at, at moving the needle on this, because our intention is is genuine. Uh, we are all about protecting students and making communities safer, uh, and we do that with the support of both gun owners, non-gun owners, uh, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, it's really a human issue, and we're treating it as such.
0: All right. This story just moved this afternoon on globalnews.ca in a potential breakthrough toward the first significant U.S. gun law in decades. A bipartisan group of senators on Sunday, so today, announced an agreement on a framework for a firearms safety bill with enough Republican support to advance in the narrowly divided Senate. The plan, praised by President Joe Biden, Includes support for state red flag laws keeping guns from potentially dangerous people, tougher criminal background checks for firearms buyers under 21, and a crackdown on straw purchases by people buying firearms for others who could not pass a background check. My guest is Mark Barden. He is the co-founder and CEO of Sandy Hook Promise. You can go to at Sandy Hook on Twitter so, Mark, it looks as though it's potentially now going to happen that the that the Senate will ratify and support the legislation passed in the House.
6: Uh, yeah, or something or something like it, uh, Roy. There's definitely uh, room. There's a reason for optimism here.
0: Uh, the Senate
6: uh, announcing this framework today uh, with the support of, uh, of, of 10 Republicans. Uh, and, and that's just on the framework. So there's room for more to uh, to. to uh, add their name to this uh, list of, uh, of Republican supporters, uh, and I think it's uh, significant. And uh, I think they sh- those those Republicans uh, definitely need to be recognized for uh, for standing up for what their constituents are asking them for, for their safety and their well-being. Uh, with as we spoke about, these are these are modest provisions that will save lives, make us safer, protect our children, protect our communities, and still um, not interfere with anyone's Second Amendment rights. And uh, you know, we need to acknowledge them for standing up and and under, understanding that for the uh, for the greater good
0: it must have been really encouraging for you uh, to receive that tremendous response from the Boston Celtics fans the Celtics themselves and the Golden State Warriors in Boston at an NBA championship game in the last few days that must have been just I mean I watched the video of it it's it's quite it's almost chilling to to, to feel and absorb the support that you received
6: it was uh, it was such an honor, Roy, and uh, to be to be recognized by by that organization, They're a wonderful organization, and uh, they do a lot of really good work in community outreach, and uh, they have a program where they recognize what they deem or consider heroes among us. And uh, my my friend and colleague Nicole Hockley and I were both uh, recognized by that organization at their game, game four of their uh, of their their finals, and uh, with the Golden State Warriors and. Uh, what what a overwhelmingly uh, powerful event that was. It was such an honor to be uh, recognized.
0: Share with us, please, some of the successes of Sandy Hook Promise. And I mentioned at the uh, beginning of our interview today and, and last weekend, 14 million people participated in the Sandy Hook Know the Signs program, 115,000 anonymous tips received, 321 confirmed lives have been saved. Please, uh, please expand on that. Tell us, please, you know, the successes that you have and have had as an organization.
6: Yeah, thanks for that opportunity because I'm so proud of that, Roy, and I'm so proud of the students who uh, who take our programs seriously. You know, we we bring our "Say Something" and our and our "Start with Lope programs into schools, and the students uh, not only are exposed to this wonderful curriculum where they are taught taught to recognize those warning signs, which are almost always there before there's a tragedy, uh, and then they they understand the responsibility of Telling a trusted adult, either in person or through our anonymous reporting system, uh, where they are connected to a, a counselor, a live person who's a trained professional, and getting that individual, whether it's themselves or someone else that they're concerned about, uh, connected to uh, help and services that they need, so they can they can continue to be healthy before it uh, devolves into something more serious. And uh, our, my core mission really is to prevent other families from having to endure a life of pain that we have, and uh, we're doing just that. And to watch these students who are so empowered and so um, connected to the trainings uh, that that they really do take it seriously, and we continue to retrain them so it becomes part of their culture. Uh, So students trained in these programs have now uh, prevented uh, at least nine mass shootings that were plotted, planned out, and ready to go, uh, so much so that there were arrests made. So I think of these nine communities that did not have to suffer suffer this devastation that we can see repeating itself in this country, some of which you uh, just mentioned. And for me, that's, that's just huge. And to know that we are building this over time uh, and, and at scale, uh, students who continue to be trained in these programs through middle and high school and then as they go out into the world and start their own families, I really do see this as a catalyst for true culture change in the United States, and it's so desperately needed. And now to see those same values being reflected by finally – being reflected by our federal government in a bipartisan way, uh, I am really filled with hope and encouragement that we are, are on our way to, to pulling this back and to turning this around. I think we may have reached the tipping point here, Roy. This definitely feels different to me. As you said, I was in Washington all week last week, and I'll be there again this week uh, having meetings with our elected officials and, and talking through this. And um, I, it, it definitely does feel different. It's taken us way too long to get here, and it's at the cost of way too many lives, uh, and, but, but here we are, and I'm, and I'm so uh, filled with hope and optimism that we are on our way to turning this around.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green.